Sisterhood Stories is a collection of real, raw, and authentic conversations with inspiring women changemakers. We explore what it's like to be a woman in our world today. There are so many unique challenges that women face that are often not talked about, stigmatized, and kept under wraps. So this is a time for you to hear the stories of others, gather inspiration, and know that you are not alone in your journey. I am Jackie Love, the founder of Secret Sisterhood, a women's empowerment movement that empowers, uplifts, and inspires women around the world. So welcome to our tribe. Sisters, I am here today with Yasmin Poole. So Yasmin is an award-winning speaker, writer, and gender equality youth advocate. She's developed a strong sense of social justice at a young age. After growing up in a low-income family in country Victoria, she was instilled with the desire to stand up for the disadvantaged and create a fairer Australia. She is a prominent youth advocate for gender equality and youth issues. In 2018, she was the chair of the Victorian government's Youth Congress, advising the government on youth policy, representing over 1.2 million people. She's the ambassador for Plan International, which focuses on engaging young Australian women in politics. Her written works about women in politics have been published in Fairfax and Huffington Post. And she was a panellist on the ABC's TV program Q&A, which has an average viewership of 1 million people. She recently represented Australia at the 2018 APEC conference in Papua New Guinea and has interned at a variety of NGO organisations since she was 17. She was awarded with the Australian Financial Review 100 Women of Influence and the Top 40 Under 40 Most Influential Asian Australians, being the youngest winner of both. She is now the director of the 180 Degrees Consulting, which is a youth-led social impact consultancy that spans across 30 countries and is studying law and international relations at ANU. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you so much. Okay. Good to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. And gosh, that is just a crazy, you have done so much. <laughs> it's weird when you read it out like that and I'm like, oh yeah, I have done that. No, but it's something I wouldn't have expected to ever be doing now. So amazing. I can't wait to sit down with you and just have a chat with you and hear your journey. So I wanted to start off with and just delve deep, if that's okay with you. I ask these questions with every guest, just because I think it's really nice to just learn more about you. So what I want to know is what has been the biggest high moments in your life and what has been the biggest low moments as well? It is a big question, I have to say. I think... The first high moment, and I always draw this back to kind of where it all started, and it was in year 10, and it was, um, sorry, it was year 11, and it was 2014, it was the year that ISIS was dominating the headlines, and with a Muslim mother, it was a time where there was a lot of fear that turned into anger, that turned into blame, and having watched my mother face discrimination over my life, it was something I felt quite helpless with. But that year was the year that I entered just my local public speaking competition. It was nothing fancy. And I decided to just speak about it. And it was funny because I didn't even win that competition. But I remember just as I was speaking, there was a young boy in the audience with tears in his eyes, sitting next to his mother who was also wearing a hijab. Mm. And I realized in that moment it was it was the moment that unlocked the realization that my story could have a meaning and help others for even more than myself mm-hmm. and turn my experiences into strengths. So that was the first highlight for me. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is also, this is also high school, but it was actually quite a transformative time, at least towards the end. And it was giving my valedictory speech. And it was just the feeling that I'd gotten to this point and 
I think even then, I think that was really where kind of the public speaking element, I realised this was just what I loved to do. And it was just, it was a high point just for the feeling of pride that this was just the new time in my life and I was trusted to, you know, say the final word and my peers, you know, had to give a standing ovation and I still draw back to it as just one of the happiest, proudest moments I think I've ever felt. And then the, the final one was Q&A because it was such, you know, what's was funny actually, the year before I was in the audience and I was so stoked that I was just even sitting there and afterwards my friends looked at each other and said, one day in, you know, two decades we'll be on this panel and I was like, yeah, haha, that's really funny. And then lo and behold, the next year I was sitting next to Tony Jones. So I think that was also an amazing high. It just reaffirmed to me that I'm on the right track. And how old were you when you did that? I had just turned 20. Wow. Yeah, yeah, just turned 20. Amazing. So it was it was extraordinary. I think the feeling of finally realising that I'd, I'd gotten to this point and it also gave me a platform as well to speak out about the things that cared and people were listening. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just it came at the perfect time um, because – Right before then, actually, this transition as well into the low okay, point. Okay, yeah. Um, right before then, that same year, I had transferred to ANU, and it was such a big decision because coming from a low-income background, I didn't have a family that could pay for my dorm. They couldn't support me as much as they wanted to, and it was a year of feeling a bit lost, to be honest, not having money for – having just enough money for food but nothing else, even, even something so small. I remember it was like a $10 – ticket to a social event I couldn't do it I couldn't meet that many people like I I was inside you know feeling stressed and anxious and wondering have I made the right decision so that year after all of that stress it was just amazing to finally just have the affirmation that you know you came to ANU in Canberra which is next to parliament which is a big reason why I came for a reason and that I am on the right track and I think one of the big low points I can think of is 2016 when I graduated high school and it was the exact same feeling. I was working full-time, $12 an hour, nothing very glamorous. And I realised that I didn't feel fulfilled and it was a lot of, well, what's my purpose? What should I be doing? And I think that lack of the safety net of high school really threw me for that year. But had it not been for that year, there's no, no chance I'd even have done half of the stuff that I've done today. Mm. And isn't it interesting how sometimes the lowest points in your life connect to your highest points? It is funny, yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I'm so grateful for them, you know. Mm. I, I think back because during that year it was awful. It was um, like when I talk about that village victory speech, I come off this, you know, high of high school and I, I have all this motivation and I go straight to, you know, move into a new place, no friends, full-time job, not very well paid. Um, and I had all this, you know, motivation when I was younger and, I felt it was slipping away and I didn't want that to be my life. But had I not done that, and we'll talk about this later, but when I started getting involved in youth-led organisations, it was going on that track that opened so many more doors that I never would anticipate. So thank God I was feeling restless. Otherwise, I don't know you know, what I'd be doing now. So um, Yeah, and in saying that as well, so you started volunteering for NGOs also at a young age. So did that start at school? No, it wasn't at school, actually. I was growing up on the Gold Coast, which is, is um, by that point, I, I did live in a rural place, but that was not in, in the Gold Coast. But at the same time, there was still limited opportunities. And that was the only really thing there that I did was more public speaking. Volunteering, it just wasn't really there. 
after when I moved to Melbourne, my world expanded. It took me a little while to see those opportunities, but it just goes to show, you know, the power of mentors. There was this one person and I was at like I was at a leadership program and I said, Hey, I just want to get involved in something. I don't even know what. I don't even know what I'm particularly passionate about. But if it's some like, you know, social justice kind of impact kind of thing, just sign me up. I want to do it. And he wrote down the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and Oak Tree, um, one which focuses on climate and poverty, respectively. And doing that and walking into this organisation just entirely led by young people with thousands upon thousands of volunteers, I realised, wait, I'm 18, yet, you know, other people here, some are even younger, yet making already this tremendous impact. And that really just opened my world in terms of what I can do now. And it wasn't just run by, you know, older people in suits. It was people like me that were taking a few hours of their day. And even doing that small act, even volunteering, was enough to make me go home and feel that sense of purpose that I'd been missing and look further and, and educate myself and become inspired. So that was, you know, it was an amazing experience. It totally transformed how I saw, how I saw the world and my own ability to make a change. It sounds like when you say it that it's just like such a natural progression, but a lot of young people don't start volunteering. They don't work for NGOs. It, it often happens later in life. And I mean, the stereotype is that just the grey-haired older, older types are the ones that start now thinking of having a purpose and a meaning. So I just congratulate you on, on being so open to that and so receptive of that from the beginning. What made you excited that you could make a difference? As I mentioned, growing up low income and also, you know, with a mother from a migrant background, there was a lot of experiences that I felt that I really wanted to share with the world and I didn't really know how to do that. So I think going into those organisations just taught me that if you want to either tell a story, create a certain impact, you can do it. Interestingly, you know, doing those organisations, it actually led me more to youth engagement with politics because I realised that one of my strengths was, you know, my interest in politics and government and, you know, also my experiences as a young person and the fact that many young people like me, as you said, aren't volunteering, aren't getting involved, but there's also reasons, you know, they're working full time, they don't, you know, they have a lot of other things on their plate. But if I could use that and channel kind of what those organisations are doing, even in my own capacity, to create a wider platform for young people, to create that feeling of agency that, those organisations are, you know, created within me. That's how we can create a better society that does incorporate young people. So it actually led me down this path of realising that politicians aren't efficiently consulting with young people despite these huge organisations. So in a way, it almost redirected me to to what I had experienced when I was younger and the feeling of disillusionment and disempowerment growing up around issues that I thought that I couldn't use my voice on, even though I could. It's so important that politicians can actually listen, understand, and also meaningfully reform their policies um, through what young people are you know, saying to them. And I still think we have a long way to go there. So I think that was really where the agency came from. It was mm-hmm. kind of those, you know, the impact they were creating mixed with my own experiences. Wow. And it sounds like 
for you, politics was really a way that you could see you could make change and you could have a voice in, which I think is really powerful because there's so many avenues to go in. But I I really believe that politics is where you make systematic change and long lasting change. It can be hard. It can be very hard. And that's why I distance myself quite a lot from in terms of me getting involved, because that I know that it's a whole other landscape that you have to operate in. So well done (laughs) for putting yourself in the firing line. I think that's incredible. Um, So what really attracted you to politics? Was Mm. it the fact that you could make a difference? It's also probably the public speaking side you really liked as well. So that goes hand in hand. Yeah, I think it it kind of goes back to one moment. And funnily enough, it actually was in Canberra. It was my year eight school trip. And we just, you know, driven down this big bus from Queensland. Everyone was so over it. They were like, this isn't even that great. The capital is not even that nice. But um, so we went on this tour of Parliament House and most people were, they just were excited for Questacon. So they were saying, get me out of here, you know. And that was me. I'm just going to hit my head up. So that was definitely me at the the time. It's part of the most interesting parts of camera, I'm not going to lie. But they took us to the House of Reps and it was there wasn't even anyone in it. It was empty. But I sat down and I looked over and I just saw, I just looked at it. And it created this feeling that I've never even quite felt before. And it was this, this warm feeling that this is where I need to be. I even realized that even at that young age, in that room is genuinely where you can create impact. And all jobs in some sense can create impact, but politics is, it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And it was that one experience that I never really quite forgot because I've never really felt it anywhere else. Isn't that weird that that happens? Like, because yeah. I've had that so many times in my life where mm. it's such a, um, it's not a big situation that happens, but just something happens within you where you're like, this is it's actually where I'm meant to be. That's right. Like yeah. I feel at home or this is just where I can see my life going. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah. It, 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 even at that age, it was just, mm. I just felt this, this shift mm. and Ever since then, I mean, even, you know, even in things like debating and it was always something I took an interest in, but it, it wasn't even just political issues. It went it went deeper than that. And I think it came into that part about change and impact and once again using my experiences and realising that there are so many other young Australians and Australians more broadly that have been marginalised, mm-hmm. you know, that are still suffering, you know. Even, for example, my parents, they lost their business in the global financial crisis and I was... I firsthand saw the impacts that that could create. Mm. And those things stay with you. Mm. But I also realised that politics is a mechanism to create policy to make those, and this is very black and white, but to make people's lives harder in a sense. Or you can create freedom and opportunity. You can make legislation and policy either look to the past or anticipate the future. And there's a lot of power in that. And not power as in I want to have all the power, but as in this is genuinely a place that, things can be changed and more Australian more broadly. So mm-hmm. I think that was really the uh, the main thing that's helped me stick with politics. But I just love it anyway. It's, always, it's something I've always been interested in, mm-hmm. at least ever since high school. So mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. So I want to shift into your, your views and what you think about women in politics because you are with Secret Sisterhood right now. Um, and you've done quite a lot of things, actually, for women in politics. You've written um, art, opinion pieces. Q&A was very much uh, directed towards women in politics. Or is, was that, is yes. that right? Yes. Um, so I would love to hear your views. Actually, I've also got a report that you quoted, actually, in one of your articles. And it was a Plan International Australia report from She Can Lead. And it surveyed a group of young women 
and it said that between 18 and 25, 0% said they wanted to become a politician. That is insane. Like, that just really, really, really shocked me because here, this government is where you can make most systematic change, yet no young women want to go into it. And we need to make a change in that in order to reflect our current society. First of all, why do you think that is? And second of all, how do you think that we can get young women into politics? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there is this, this trend of young women feeling like almost that they, that they aren't able to create space in parliament. And it's interesting because Plan also did another report and it found that from the ages, I think, of 12, maybe 12, 13, girls' faith in their own leadership ability starts to decrease. And by 15, by 15 it's, it just absolutely dips. And I think the reason why that is is that young women, especially during that age, are very conscious of the expectations and the norms that women still have to grapple with. And even aside from politics, the leadership hurdles facing women are pretty extraordinary because I think we're almost expected to do everything. We're expected to be still, you know, the caring wives or mothers or whatever and even managing a career on top of that, it's you still can't, you know, get rid of that kind of yeah. stuff and you have to be more gentle and compassionate and it just is a lot more nuanced. Mm. But I also think the reason why is that in politics, especially with women, it's almost like there's no room for error because the immediate, you know, if you stuff up as everybody does at some stage or another it's a lot harder as a woman to try to come back from that and I think there are many examples of women and those in the public life but also in politics that you know one thing could destroy an entire career I think that's a very real fear yeah whereas men are given so many different chances so many chances so many chances like it's just it's pretty extraordinary I was speaking to Blair Williams yesterday who did her PhD in the gendered uh, media scrutiny of she examined Julia Gillard compared to Michael Turnbull and Kevin Rudd and, and that kind of thing. And as it's been just like this has been talked about, but you know, people media commenting on her style, her partner, whether she did the fact that she didn't have kids. Like her partner's like sexual orientation. Yeah, sexual orientation. Like that she doesn't smile enough. Exactly. Like it's insane. Exactly. And even even things like uh, the leadership spill, whereas the treatment of Malcolm Turnbull versus Julia Gillard was very different. Malcolm Turnbull was seen in terms of in the media as playing the game. He understood the institution. He did what he had to do. Julia Gillard was portrayed as a backstabber, as someone that, you know, was, I don't know, undermining her party. Like, how dare she? Almost evil. Yeah. So women are expected, are held to a different standard, almost to the point where they're expected to fail if they're not able to actually navigate politics. Because politics, as we talked about, is, is very difficult. Um, but our expectations on women are, like, like it, it's almost like there's, again, there's no room for error, but... We hold women to a different standard that's it's really hard to do well in politics mm. with that certain standard, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we have the same in, uh, like, business as well. Yeah. Like, I often talk to a lot of women and it's like if you're too too much of a leader and if you put yourself out there and if you're too direct and that's if you right. say what you want, you're called bossy or exactly. whatever. But then if you're too soft, then you just don't even get looked at. So it's like, how do you find that balance? And whenever women show sort of like a masculine side to themselves in terms of they're more direct, they're more like they're going in there and like going to want to really create change and they're forthright about it, they often get put down Mm. because I 
think men get intimidated really mm. I don't know why yeah. but it's just it, it happens I think in every industry which mm. is just crazy and sad mm. and it's crazy that we just pick on such different things between men and women especially in politics like why do we care what they wear mm. like there's a lot bigger things that we need to discuss and a lot bigger things that are going on if you're picking on the color of someone's shoes mm. Or that she didn't smile enough. Like, that's really not the issues that we should be focusing on in real terms. And it's it's interesting as well because I was, after speaking to Blair yesterday, she was saying that deputy women in deputy leadership roles actually don't seem to face the same scrutiny. The reason why that is, is because they're supporting the male leader. Right. They're that in that second in command, but in still in that supportive role. And that mm. ties back into the gender expectations of women, supportive, subservient, caring. Mm-hmm. But the, the minute that a woman is in that leadership position, it's a whole different kind of scrutiny mm. because she's still expected to play that supportive role. So when she's not, it's like, wow, she's kind of, you know, she's, yeah. she's going against inherently maybe what society expects. Yeah. And that's, I think, where the scrutiny can come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really difficult. So, so think, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a young woman, someone that's just graduated high school. You see all of that and you go, do I really want to do that? Mm-hmm. And, in, of course, there's an amazing ability to make an impact and change, but to put yourself in that firing line is very real and very scary. So I think that goes back into the importance of support and a support network for young women because... I couldn't even imagine trying to do that alone or feeling like you're alone in that process. It's it's pretty scary. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's kind of, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts and how we can kind of encourage more young women and also culturally diverse women and men because that's also an issue that we need to look at. And a quote that I kind of always go back on in my life is that you can't be what you can't see. So if we can't see young women in leadership roles, how are we meant to now model that? What are, how are you meant to get into those positions? Because we can't see it in our society. So it's like we need the kind of trailblazers to get in there and set a great example. So how do you think that we can, yeah, encourage more diverse representation? I think it's a twofold aspect. It's building capacity within young women and culturally diverse women especially but also an institutional shift. Despite there being more, I think Labor's almost 50-50, but you still look at the type of woman. Mm-hmm. It's very much, you know, middle-aged white women, which is fine, but when we're talking about you can't be what you can't see, imagine if we change that so it's a diverse range of women, young women, women from migrant backgrounds, people that, you know, those that experience disability, all these kinds of things to actually create a parliament that looks like our society. So I think a way to do that is firstly creating that pathway into an institution that historically hasn't really welcomed women. So that mentorship opportunity, and especially for culturally diverse women, mentorship within their own cultural communities is a really good way to kind of build strength by sharing experiences between one another. Because I recently came from the Asian Australian Leadership Summit and it was the first time I looked around and people looked like me, but also we'd experienced really, really similar things. And I thought, wow, because I thought a lot of the stuff, it just, you feel like you're alone. Mm. But I realized in that moment that there's actually a lot of commonalities in terms of my experience with others. So I think that's one of the first things. The second one is a cultural shift within each political party. When they're pre-selecting women, so selecting women to run for different electorates, make sure that it's in, it's not 
because sometimes you can nominate women, but it's really hard to win that electorate. So in safe electorates, but also realize and acknowledge internal bias, I think is a really good and important step. Um, So I think creating easier pathways is really important because as you said, you know, to, to try to be the first is really difficult. There is strength in diversity and if we want to create better policy and reduce the high rate of disillusionment in young women, the first step is making policy that actually reflects them. And that's the really way the way you can get that is just having more young women involved as a whole. What I want to ask you as well, because I'm just in awe, there's so many people that have all these amazing um, views and opinions and, and experience and passion, but you... I feel as though you're very special as you have a voice, you're being heard, which is incredible. And with you being a young woman, you're from um, a diverse background, all the odds are against you in a way, but you have cut through, you've made your voice heard, your articles have been published in amazing publications and yeah, your views are really out there. So I want to ask you, how do you get your voice out there? How have you managed to do that? I think the first thing is that I've been so lucky in that I've had amazing mentors, both male and female, that have really supported me and and given me that platform. Even Q&A was because of a producer that wanted to give more voice to young people and especially young women and the same for the drama and the same for, you know, writing these articles. That was through Plan International, which actively creates opportunities for young women and young women interested and involved in activism. So I think that's a huge part. Mm. But Also, I think it's not being afraid to be vulnerable because I realized quite early on that if I wanted to be a leader, it's not going to be the kind of, you know, white man in a suit, middle-aged. That's not going to be my leadership style. I'm never going to be the loudest person in the room. That won't be me. Mm -hmm. But the way that I can be a leader is authentically sharing my experiences and kind of seeing where that takes me. And I think that's really been a key factor I haven't been trying to pretend or or hide my experiences to try to create image of what I'm not Mm. and I realized quite early on that we are all on separate paths and if I go about trying to emulate someone else's experience whether they inspire me and that's that's great if they inspire me but it will never be my journey Mm. everything I've done has come from a place of it's resonated with me and I think even that kind of passion has led to some amazing opportunities I'd never expect. So I think having at least the initial courage to just do it and to just start, I think it's it's mentors but also taking every opportunity and, and understanding whether it resonates with me and kind of just seeing where that path leads. But it's, it's those that have created space for me, I think, has been just transformative in my ability to, to use my voice. So... It's something I'll never forget and something I really, really just want to keep repaying throughout my career now mm. and also when I'm older mm. to, to create that same sense of empowerment that others have helped me find. So you have done so many amazing things at such a young age. It sounds like you're studying full time, you're super busy. So what are your tips? Because our women love to hear about this. What is your tips to self-care? Um, because I feel like self-care can look very different for a lot of different people. And I think self-care, I'm a very big advocate of self-care because I think it's one of the most important things 
human beings need to do, especially women, because I think women take on a lot of different roles. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear what you do on a regular yeah. basis. It was definitely a learning curve. Yeah. In the beginning, I had not mastered self-care. <laughs> I think in my first year of uni, I just said yes to everything. Yeah. And then was suddenly surprised when I couldn't handle everything. It was like falling apart. Why is this happening to what? me? What, what is wrong with me? Um, so I think, I mean, the first part, and this isn't necessarily just self-care tips, but look at every opportunity and make pros and cons. And also Great. go with your heart as well. But mm. also say, should I really be... Should I use my time in this area? I think that's the first step because just at least having like a kind of a yearly vision of the the goals that you want to achieve mm. that year is really good in directing and helping you manage what's on your plate. So I think mm. first is that. But in terms of actual self-care, my mum's a mental health nurse. So she's always checking in. Oh, she's wow. saying, how are you going? Make sure that's that great. you're um, – so she's really helped me learn mindfulness as well, being mm. able to kind of just – relax your brain even for five minutes a day and just to do whether it be journaling or just something to kind of get away from all the noise mm-hmm. I think is really powerful yeah but the final part is friends yeah my friends as much as they're proud of me they don't really care that much about <laughs> what I'm up to yeah. which is actually yeah. really refreshing yeah because it's just having a sense of normality. Yeah. And I realize hang out. I can totally hang out and at uni it's this is a time of my life that I'm not gonna get back. And as much as I love to do what I do, it's also important just to be social and mm-hmm. just have fun and yeah. I think so I think having that support network that doesn't put pressure on you and just allows you to do your thing. I'm so grateful for them for that. And they've helped even expand my mind about what I think about the world and they mm-hmm. challenge me or all of that kind of thing. So mm. spending time with them has really just been amazing and helping me kind of turn off my brain for a little bit or relax or just just focus on something else that isn't work. So Yeah, life's too short part. not to have fun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I'm kind of I'm very similar in terms of the pros and cons. That's definitely something I've just started to adopt. And it's kind of like you have your vision of what you want maybe for the year or for six months or a month and it, and then it's thinking, well, is this is this opportunity or this task going to advance me towards what I want. And for me, it's been really refreshing because a lot of the time it's actually not the case, but I'll want to say yes, because I'll feel like that's what I have to do. But it's like, hang on a second. I'm just one human being and there's only so much I can take on. And and there's no point in taking on all those other little things when if that's not going to advance you to where you want to be in a year from now. So I think that's really great. Um, And so... What does sisterhood mean to you? I think it's just recognizing that we're in it together. Mm. And it comes back to that sense of support, but also it's a safe place. It's a safe place to just expand your ambition or share your fears or and just have a support network that will actually just be there for you. And that sisterhood plays in various ways. It, it, drawing back to that example of the Austrade CEO, it's her realizing that it's time to, you know, uplift and allow young women to leapfrog, you know, over my mm-hmm. achievements and expand it even further. Or it's my friends who are just in it so we can talk and chat and laugh and just that feeling of belonging, I think, is mm-hmm. really, really powerful. And that's that creates the strength, I think, that feeling of sisterhood that, yeah, I can do it, you know, mm-hmm. even with politics. Yeah, it's going to be hard and it won't always be perfect, but having that network of support, mm-hmm. that sisterhood, is what will help me to keep going and will help so many other women like me. So that's what what it means to me. Beautiful. That's really beautiful. 
And what does the future have in store for you now? Well, I'm still <laughs> figuring it out. Yeah. I take it year by year. <laughs> so I think politics is, is a long-term dream, but in the immediate future it's going to continue to advocate for young people to develop a platform to also expand upon what I'm interested in in terms of whether it be climate change or innovation or things that are really big questions, but to kind of use this time of being young to understand where I sit and work through that. So, but I think the long-term dream is politics. Awesome. And, I mean, it would be a bit hypocritical of me to keep advocating for young men in politics if I don't say the same. So. Exactly. Well, I'm excited. In, like, 10 years from now, <laughs> I'm excited to see you as Prime Minister. Oh, we'll see what happens. Gosh. So, yes. Yeah, very exciting. Um, and then one last question that I wanted to ask. What is the biggest piece of advice that you can give to a woman who wants to make an impact in the world? I think the first thing is to understand that your leadership journey is unique to you. Mm. Leadership isn't just leading a team of people. It's understanding why you are the way that you are Yeah. in the sense that understanding the experiences that have shaped your journey in your life and using that and, you know, your values that you've learned from these experiences to guide your journey. Mm. And it's one thing to make an impact, but I think to do that you inherently have to understand who you are as a person and it's a constant process of understanding yourself. But to do that and therefore create the self-belief that you can be a leader is ultimately what you need. Because from there you can create a vision and an idea of the kind of change you want to create. That's how you get people on board. But the first part is that personal experience. So don't be afraid to share your vulnerabilities and also realize that those can be used as strengths, as opportunities and an ability to make an impact and create voice, the voice to the people that have been marginalised with similar experiences. So that personal process, I think, is really important before a wider impact. But once you've got that down, the world's your oyster. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Yasmin. Thanks for joining me. No problem. Do you want to show your support and solidarity for women around the world? Well, we have created a beautiful symbol that represents women's empowerment and the importance of coming together as a sisterhood. Head on over to our online store to get your sisterhood symbol jewellery now. 100% of the profits are directed towards amazing women charities, so not only are you wearing something beautifully symbolic of the sisterhood, but you are also making a difference to those in need at the same time. Head to secretsisterhood.com to get your sisterhood symbol now. Thank you, sisters, for listening to our Sisterhood Stories podcast. We are so happy to have you a part of our tribe. Please subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you thought about this episode by heading on over to our Facebook group. Our Facebook group is a place where our sisterhood community can connect, chat, offer support and inspiration. So if you aren't a part of it already, head on over to Facebook to join. Thank you, sisters. When we uplift women, we uplift the world.